Hi there, and welcome to Just Talks with Jasmine, a podcast that talks about the everyday aspects of life that affect us daily, but we never really seem to talk about. This week's episode will be about religion. Religion is everywhere. Whether we are actively practicing a religion, carry a spiritual belief, or don't believe at all, religion affects us. The way I would like to lay out this episode is to discuss some religions in our society today. Once going through the core beliefs of these religions, such as the origins and main historical developments and the central beliefs or central practices, I then want to discuss the social and political issues that are at hand with this religion. To conclude this episode, I will then discuss some of my main findings that I found after doing some research on these religions that I present to you in this episode. Before I begin, I would just like to give a shout out to um, the people that helped me find these religion, religious conclusions and really put this podcast together. And those people would be uh, the New Testament scholar, Dr. Henderson. Uh, Dr. Henderson works at Queen's University. And also another religious scholar, Stephen Prepero. Uh, Prepero recently released a book, God is Not One. Um, the text in this book was severely helpful in uh, forming this podcast. So let's begin. first religion that I would like to discuss is Islam. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to make another note that Just Talks with Jasmine is a fairly new podcast, so please excuse any of my awkward um, accents or the way I'm talking. This is all very new to me. Um, I also would like to start by stating before I started forming this podcast and having these talks with Stephen Prethero and Dr. Henderson, um, I really was unfamiliar with any of these religions or any type of religion at all. This is all very new to me, so as much as I hope I'm educating you through this podcast, this is also an educational process for me. So back to Islam. Um, Islam is known as a religion, um, or Muslims are known as people of the book, um, along with Judaism and Christianity, meaning it has biblical roots. Um, and these roots date back to Muhammad, who lived uh, around the end of uh, 500 BC. E. Um, Muhammad is fairly similar to Paul in the Christian story that I'm sure many know. Um, he had visions um, that rooted back to the traditions of Abraham and lived in the city of Mecca. Um, and these visions that Muhammad had are really what shaped uh, the beliefs that most Islams, excuse me, most Muslims uh, believe. So Islam actually means surrender, and Muslim mean ones who surrender. Um, Allah means one God. Uh, a strict belief of Islam is that there is one God and one God only. Um, and they find most of their beliefs and their findings in the Quran, which reveals the word of God. Uh, the Quran was actually spoke to Muhammad um, during a revelation, and so it really reveals the true word of God. Um, and he reveals this final revelation in Arabic, which is also a really important aspect of Islam, is the language of Arabic, um, speaking it and being able to read it. 
Um, the Quran is not the only important text. Uh, there are also texts such as the Hadith, which is framework that surrounds the Quran. Um, so there are some fairly central practices that has to deal with Islam. Um, there is a very strict separation of God and humans. I think this really goes hand in hand with the strict monotheism that Islam experiences. Um, so one thing that I really wanted to discuss within the practice is prayer. Prayer is typically done five times a day. Um, this is a very specific time that Muslims will pray. When they do, they pray in the direction of Mecca, which is Islam's holiest city. Um, as I discussed earlier, that's where Muhammad lived. Um, and the posture of prayer is in total submission to Allah, often bowing down on the ground um, with your head low. Um, now, these prayer stems from the five pillars of Islam, which is a very distinctive value. Um, and these five pillars are, are very, very central to the religion. The first, and excuse my pronunciation throughout this whole podcast, I, I don't, um, I'm not quite familiar. Uh, the first pillar would be Shahada. Uh, Shahada is a declaration of faith. Uh, the second pillar is Salat, which is prayer, which I mentioned earlier. The third pillar is Zakat, which is charity. The fourth pillar is Swam, which is fasting or Ramadan. And the fifth pillar is Hajj, which is pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, I don't want to go into too, too much detail, but I will just say that um, we discussed prayer and how important that is. Charity, it's very, very important to give back to your community and the people around you. Um, I believe Muslims believe that a certain amount of income or things that they own should be given back. Um, fasting is also a very central practice. Ramadan typically lasts a month where uh, Muslims will not eat while it is light out. And pilgrimage to Mecca, that is the goal of almost every Muslim to take this pilgrimage. Um, so one of the, I talked about how the five pillars of Islam um, really are part of the values in the central practice, but one value I haven't really talked about is jihad, which uh, means struggle. Uh, struggle is present throughout all of Islam. Um, there can be spiritual struggle, which is against pride and self-sufficiency. There can be physical struggle against uh, the house of war or enemies of Islam. Um, and this kind of idea of struggle is that we as humans are going to be tempted to do certain things, um, but we really need to stay committed to showing our love and our devotion to God. Now that we have discussed uh, the kind of core beliefs and different values of Islam, I want to get to the social and political issues surrounding this religion. Um, so I talked about jihad and struggle and what that really means, um, but sometimes that physical struggle um, against what I called the house of war or enemies of Islam um, has been used recently to justify some violent killing um, in the name of Allah. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the terrorist group uh, ISIS. Um, ISIS does use passages from the Quran to justify their actions, um, ISIS or the Islamic State. Um, and they have a belief about the Day of Judgment, um, and they will say that they will not waver from Islam by the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but many Islamic historians and theologians have spoken out against the Islamist state and their validity. Um, for example, the letter to al-Baghdad was written by many um, Islamic theologians 
theologians and historians that kind of disprove all of these passages that they say they use to justify their acts of violence. Um, this has been kind of a reoccurring trend with many different religions where um, the texts and the beliefs are somewhat manipulated to be used to justify some, some not so good things. Um, so I'm gonna dive into the, the reasoning behind this, and uh, this is really actually part of one of my main findings, is how this kind of plays out and plays a role within religion in our community. Um, but another social and political issue that is surrounded with Islam is actually Islamophobia, which has been growing recently um, in recent times, specifically in European countries and in America and the United States, but um, really can present in a lot of different places. Uh, many just hold a lot of misconceptions and false beliefs about this community. Um, for example, a lot of people feel that women wearing a hijab is a, seen as a very negative thing or that women don't really have this choice, um, but actually most women do it um, or are not forced to wear a hijab. It is a personal choice where they feel that they are closer to God um, by doing so. Um, but just that's a, one example, I think, the rise of the Islamic State and associating it with Islam has led to a lot of Islamophobia. Um, but as I said before, many different misconceptions can affect this group of people in our society. Uh, up next, we are going to be tackling Buddhism and some of those core values and beliefs and social and political issues associated with it. So stay with us. So next on our list is Buddhism. Uh, the origins of Buddhism are actually very interesting and they start with a very elaborate story. Um, this story is the story of Prince Siddhartha Gautama. Um, prince Siddhartha Gautama, as stated, was a prince um, and his mother died when he was born. So his dad, a king, shields him away from any type of dissatisfaction. He um, lives up in this castle and he really sees no pain, no sadness, um, but he feels that his life is lacking and he needs to see more. So this prince goes on a journey. He decides and his father allows it and he goes out with, of course, a protection or a large crowd of people from his castle. But nonetheless, he... Um, takes his journey and sees sickness, uh, sees old age, and sees death. Um, and really experiencing and seeing these three things uh, lead him to somewhat spiritual liberation. Um, and this liberation kind of leads to what is known as in Buddhism the Great Departure. Um, and so this departure, this prince, he just packs up, he leaves his family, his, his kingdom, and says, I'm, I'm going to go on this really, this soul-searching um, journey. Um, and this great departure takes him on a, a long journey. He travels far, and um, this journey is, is very strict. There are times where he's, he uh, kind of meditates, or he spends time under a, a tree, and he just... Um, really thinks and he, he spends lots of time not eating um, and during this time he really becomes awakened um, and he discovers these four noble truths that I'm going to get into um, but his awakened um, 
path led him uh, to what is known as the middle path. And this is a path between hedonism and ascentism. Um, and so when he first took this journey, he was fasting severely and he was rejecting anything um, from really, I guess, the, the real world. And he discovered that he needed to take a, maybe a less strict path, you could say. Um, but he uh, still was um, awakened and, and searching, but he wasn't so, I guess, strictly um, out of tune with everything that was going on. Um, so these four noble truths that I discussed, um, they can be framed um, with the first being that life involves suffering. Um, and this is just a fact. There's nothing we can really uh, do about this. This is the way life is. But uh, the second noble truth is kind of some good news, I guess you could say. Um, we know the origin of this suffering. Um, examples of this origin can be attaching, grasping, whether that be to things or people, and desire. Um, and I guess even more good news, other than that we know the origin of suffering, suffering can be eliminated. Um, but the only way that it can be eliminated is if you follow the fourth noble truth, which is the eightfold path. Um, this path, uh, there's these, like I said, uh, well, as it says in the name, eightfold, um, there's eight different parts. Um, these parts include understanding, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Uh, now, these really boil down to three different um, things. Uh, understanding and thought can really be seen as, uh, as wisdom. The uh, speech, action, and livelihood, th those are more of ethics. And effort, mindfulness, and concentration are more of practices. Um, so let's just kind of go off of those practices. Um, Prethero mentioned that most Buddhists do not actually meditate, but I think it is important to talk about meditation because I think that is something that we typically associate with Buddhism. Um, and it is a good example of a way that you can um, kind of practice this eightfold uh, noble path. Um, so uh, there are many different types of meditation, such as sitting meditation, breath meditation, um, Vipassana meditation, which is really um, meditating, and instead of trying to push out all the thoughts that come in, into your head, it's to meditate and to realize and recognize those thoughts that are in your head. Um, and then there's metta meditation, that is a meditation of loving kindness. Um, so those are um, four very different interesting ways to meditate. Um, I have tried to meditate before. It, it does take effort and mindfulness and concentration, which are three parts of the Eightfold Path. I think it's a practice that you do not just learn um, overnight, but I would say um, is a really good example of how Buddhists try to live their life. Um, so I just want to go back and touch on suffering, uh, the first noble truth uh, that life does involve suffering. Um, so they believe in a human problem um, as excuse me, they believe they can trace the human problem to the karma-fueled cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And this is known as samsara. Um, and they believe that the idea is to um, get out of this uh, rebirth by reaching nirvana, which actually Prethro mentioned uh, literally means blowing out, um, such as blowing out candles on a birthday cake. Um, but it really means extinguishing suffering. 
Um, so there are a variety of varieties of techniques to achieve this goal, um, such as I talked about meditating or chanting. Um, but it, it's interesting because I just want to make note that that's a very, very difficult thing to do in our purpose-driven culture. Um, like how doing nothing can be hard, which sounds weird, but um, I would say it's really true. And I think Buddhists really take a step back and, and understand that sometimes we are constantly on a treadmill and we're, and we're running through life and to them we die and we continue to run through life and the goal is to really get off of that treadmill. Um, Dr. Henderson, the scholar from Queens, made a, a very good comparison to a treadmill, so I don't really want to take all the credit um, for that, um, that example, I should say. Um, so social and political issues that are associated with Buddhism, um, instead of talking about some of those issues, which th there are, as in every every religion, um, some some issues at hand. I wanted to talk about how Buddhism actually kind of um, focuses on, or not focuses on, but takes upon to critique the the social and political issues of Hinduism. Um, and so this was just a good example to me on how. One, religions are always interconnected, um, such as we talked about Islam being um, people of the book and how they're connected to Judaism, Christianity, but also um, how as different religions kind of develop over time, um, they can take things from other religions and kind of change them. So one part of one big part of Buddhism is that it rejects the caste system, which was a big part of Hinduism. Um, the caste system is an idea that we are born into certain roles in society, and we don't really question them. We just uh, live a life um, kind of devoted to um, the practices of Hinduism in hopes of, in the next life, um, reaching a different level in the case system. Um, but to Buddhists, this, this really isn't the case. And um, the case system can, can really lock a, a country or a group of people um, into a systematic um, inequality um, way of life. In a, and, and so that's, that, to me, is, was um, something really interesting to, to really note. Um, and just wanted to go back a little bit to, we, we talked about um, kind of how Buddhism has developed. Um, it, as I stated with the prince, well, I guess I, I didn't officially state, but the, this prince did stem, or was born in India. Um, but Buddhism really did spread uh, throughout Asia. Um, and so you, I, you find it in other Asian countries today much more than you do find it in India. Um, that is because of, I think, a lot of the wandering and um, the path that uh, the Buddha or Prince Siddhartha took. A lot of Buddhists also um, went, uh, traveled a lot. Um, and so that is why it kind of left India and went into Asia. But um, Buddhism does have roots all over the world now. There's, there is a, a slightly large community in America that practices um, Buddhism. Um, during my time preparing for this podcast, I actually had the opportunity to go to a Buddhist temple in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and to see a very large community uh, present here in Charlotte. So, so that was quite um, interesting. And all right, we are going to move on from Buddhism to another religion that is very, very um, special to me, holds a special place in my heart, and that is Sikhism. So stick with us, and we'll be finishing up with our next religion.
Okay, so welcome back to Just Talks with Jasmine. Uh, and as I mentioned before, uh, this final religion that I wanted to discuss, Sikhism, um, is very close to my heart. Um, and that is because um, I wouldn't qualify myself as a practicing Sikh, but um, my family does have roots uh, within Sikhism. Uh, my father was born in India. He was born in the Punjab region. And my grandparents lived there for about half their life. And um, when my dad was a teenager, he moved to the United States. Uh, my grandparents still practice um, Sikhism very fairly strongly, I would say. Um, there's a prayer room in their house. Um, there are certain things, and not just part of Sikhism, but Indian culture that um, they have taught me and we participate in when we um, go to their house. Um, for example, when we walk in, I immediately touch my head to my grandparents' feet as a sign of respect. Um, and when we go into the prayer room, um, all the women and girls, we are required to cover our heads with um, saris, and the men are required to cover their heads with um, bandanas. Um, but just just a little look into um, my grandparents' life um, and um, some of my dad's life. Um, so I would like to give credit to um, those, my father, Ardiman Singh, and my grandparents, Surinder Singh and Bhagwant Singh. Um, I'm going to refer to them as Manji and Babaji, which are my grandmother and grandfather, um, if, I, if I do touch on them. But they really gave me um, all this information about Sikhism. Um, and rather than kind of looking these things up online, I wanted to kind of give their perspective because I think um, that is what uh, really having interfaith uh, education is all about, right, is, is hearing from people who live these things uh, every day. Um, so my grandparents and my father kind of gave me a little background on the Sikhism roots. Um, they have roots back to the Guru Nanak. Uh, Guru Nanak was a Hindu, um, but he actually had some different views on religious practices. Guru Nanak believed that there's only one God. Um, as opposed to the different deities of Hinduism. Um, and this Guru Nanak wrote down some, some core scriptures, um, but these scriptures were then expanded by the next nine gurus. So guru is like their leader. Um, my father kind of compared it to other religions, such as Catholicism that has, uh, always has a pope. Um, Hinduism always has a guru. Um, and these nine uh, gurus to follow really helped form these scriptures and to form... Um, Sikhism as a whole. Um, so the ninth guru, which is uh, the the Baghar guru, um, and the the tenth guru are really the two gurus that kind of developed uh, what Sikhism is today. Um, so the ninth guru was um, around well, during a time where um, my my grandparents described it as a. a a large ruling of India by Muslims and a large oppression by Muslims to the Sikh people. Um, and when there was a war they just spoke of that broke out, and after that time of the ninth guru and the tenth guru came to be, um, Sikhs were allowed to practice freely. Um, and so they started to create their own kind of practices, such as men carrying around a sword um, and growing out their hair, um, which they wore in a turban, and carrying around a special comb. Um, another central practice that came from this time is the these five purification steps, and these are um, certain steps taken um, where you kind of clear, purify and cleanse your body um, to kind of I guess, as it states in what it's titled, but um, to become more purified. Um, 
And one one of the practices that my um, grandparents really, really, really wanted to stress was um, something known as langar, which is service. Um, and this is really present today in Sikhism. Um, but the idea of langar is to give back to the community. Um, so they this langar occurs after every service. Um, and in India, this is every day. And my grandparents said that uh, the service they attend every Sunday, this occurs. They live in Cleveland, Ohio now. Um, but what happens is they have um, the service um, and they are at their, their temple. And afterwards, everyone um, from the Sikh community gets together and cooks a large meal that is open to everyone in the public. Um, and they really wanted me to stress that um, anyone from any different religion or any different background is asked to join them um, or is welcome. Um, so that is, um, I think, something that really kind of uh, is a prime example of how Sikhs live their life. Um, and so going on to the, the social and political issues, I, I want to touch on two things. The first that um, I mentioned the, the tension between Muslims and Sikhs. Uh, my grandparents uh, were alive during the India-Pakistan split, and um, I can tell it's very present that they have a very negative connotation toward towards Muslims. Um, and while I think they have witnessed things that can make them or uh, justify the way they feel, I would say, um, their view is, is very different than maybe a view I would have on the Muslim society. Um, and I think this is just an example, maybe, um, how we talked about, uh, I talked about earlier with Islamophobia, that, that there can be a lot of certain um, misconceptions within um, within religion and within um, Islam. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that uh, briefly. Um, and the other kind of social and political issue that I wanted to talk about, um, this is actually quite personal to me, and I, and I don't know if this can represent all of Sikhism. Um, this could be more of just a, a, an Indian cultural practice, but um, I've actually really struggled with my relationship with my grandparents for a long time now. Um, while I love to hear about their, their Sikh um, beliefs and their, their backgrounds, we just, we've never really clicked um, on a personal level, um, I've been frustrated with things such as my cousins that are my same age, um, one year older than me, uh, two, and the other two years older than me are both males. And it's very clear that when we go to visit my grandparents, there are different things asked of me than them. Um, and that's always kind of not sat well with me. And again, I'm not saying that this might um, strictly be um, because of the foundations in Sikhism. Um, but it just kind of, I think, goes to show that, that there can be cultural differences associated with religions because religions are from different places. Um, and so uh, just different ideas such as equality and, and things within, like our example of Hinduism in the caste system, um, there can be things that, that are really tough for certain people or millennials or my generation to accept. Um, so I've just, I've struggled to find that balance with my grandparents of respecting their background and their beliefs and, and the way they live to wanting to show them my life and the way that I live. So um, I, I'm not sure if this, this is a proper reflection, but I, I just thought it was something important to mention because um, that is uh, something that can be present within Sikhism and a social and political issue, but something that can be present within all different religions is, is the difference in um, cultural aspects. 
Um, and before we, we conclude, I wanted to mention when discussing some of the core values and practices of Sikhism, some of the holidays, because um, Sikhs really do it right with, with their holidays. Uh, we celebrate Diwali every year. Um, the way it's an Indian pagan holiday that celebrates light, um, uh, central to uh, Sikhs, they, they Sikhs practice this holiday, um, but the way I always describe it to my friends is Thanksgiving, the Fourth of July, and Christmas all mixed in one. Um, so we begin the evening of Diwali with a ceremony in my grandparents' um, prayer room, and uh, then we go through the whole house and carry a uh, light, which is usually a piece of cloth that is kind of covered in some oil and lit and we carry it to every room in the house and turn on every light because all of the light in the house should be on um, and then we have a giant feast um, of wonderful Indian delicious food delicious Indian food excuse me and um, open presents um, and at the end of all of that we go outside and set off fireworks um, so just another example I said like I said a uh, of, I guess, how Sikhs live their life and the happiness and the service and, and different things such as that. So I wanted to make sure I got got that in there. Um, so I really hope you enjoyed hearing these kind of um, synopsises of these three religions that, um, excuse me, four religions that I um, discussed. Um, so next up, we are going to talk about my um, findings from this whole experience. Welcome back. Um, I would just like to apologize because we have one more um, religion that we need to discuss before we get to my central findings. Um, due to my lack in editing skills with this new Just Talks with Jasmine podcast, I was unable to um, go back and not... Uh, try to conclude my podcast as I did before with Sikhism. Um, so I'm just going to jump right back in with Confucianism, um, and then I will go on and tell you my very insightful um, findings that I experienced or came to through this experience. Um, so Confucianism. Um, you may think that it's kind of interesting that I am including this in a podcast about religion. Um, within Confucianism, there are no gods, God or gods, and there's no afterlife. Um, but I think the way um, the different practices and ideas associated with Confucianism um, can kind of associate it as a religion, um, and this is actually part of my, my findings, so we will kind of get back to that debate of what religion really is. Um, so instead, we'll jump right into some of these kind of core concepts and um, developments of Confucianism. Um, so Confucianism did stem from um, a man named Confucius um, who lived in ancient China um, during a time when China was very, very advanced. Um, Confucius lived within uh, the mid-500 and 400 BCE, um, and his ideas kind of developed. Um, they went away for, for a bit, and Confucianism kind of had um, a rebirth during the Han Dynasty, which is... Um, it was in 2 BCE, um, 
in China and kind of uh, changed a little bit and shifted. There was more of a Neo-Confucianism within the 10th and 13th um, centuries, um, but I will kind of get back to how Confucianism changed, but I just wanted to give you kind of a timeline of how Confucianism um, really started and where it started with a man who was really a, a teacher. I would uh, kind of talk about Confucius as um, education was really his lifeline. Um, so uh, Confucianism um, really is centered around this idea of this principal order in society. Um, and this order stems from the way we live our life and the kind of practices that we that we practice. Um, so these um, kind of, this kind of order stems from um, five virtues. Uh, the first virtue is known as human heartedness um, or humanity, which um, in Confucianism is known as Ren. The second um, virtue is known as Li. Uh, this is propriety um, or sort of a, a code of conduct and these include um, practices where you really honor your ancestors and you carry on tradition. Uh, the third justice, uh, excuse me, the third virtue is justice. Um, kind of touching on value and equity. The fourth being wisdom, which really is um, um, thinking. And the fifth being courage or uh, faithfulness. So this, these were kind of the, these virtues that Confucius himself kind of formed and value um, created. And this is really um, the way that um, people, Confucianists, um, kind of live. Um, so I, I talked about the first uh, virtue being human heartedness and humanity or, or Ren, and I wanted to, to touch on that. So, so Ren is this idea of humanity, and Li is really the way you live that out. Um, and this Ren is a, really stems from relationships. Relationships are um, kind of everything within um, the Confucian um, Confucius beliefs. Um, so these relationships, um, there is a, a hierarchy or an order to this. Um, there are five relationships. These uh, relationships include ruler and subject, parent and child, husband and wife, elder and younger, um, and friend and friend. Um, and so there are certain boundaries that you um, kind of uh, live between these these relationships, but they really structure uh, the way of society and the way the way to really um, live life. Um, so it, it's interesting, um, I would say, because um, there there's not really this is not an official religion of China, but um, Confucianism has been um, really prevalent or present, um, I guess, in the way that you would. Um, the way that the Chinese live, the, live their life, um, which I would say a lot of religions shape the way that certain people live their life. Um, it's just interesting to look at Confucianism that way, I think, because of the lack of a presence of, of a god. But I still think there are um, spiritual presence. There is a spiritual presence in Confucianism, um, such as the idea of the focus on the present, um, but present today can be um, spiritual if you live your life through this, um, this Confucius um, uh, way, I would say. I, I don't want to get caught up with the way because we, we use that in other religions as well, such as Taoism, um, where their way is to divert us, um, er, divert us, excuse me, um, society diverts us from, from this way and to get there you must get back to nature, which um, Confucius actually disagrees. So. Um, excuse my, my language here, I don't want to, to get um, 
too confused <laughs> um, with this here. Um, so as long with those, those five virtues, another kind of central value um, of Confucianism, um, like I said, is education. Um, and these educations um, stem from some readings. There are five classics. Um, this includes the Book of Changes, uh, the Book of Documents, the Book of Odes, Book of Rites, and the Book of Spring slash Autumn and Alls. Um, and so these different books include things such as history, etiquette, revelation, um, religious rituals. Um, and then the, the another book is the Analects, which is very important to Confucianism. The Analects is kind of um, a comprised group of writings that Confucius followers wrote um, that Confucius himself said. Um, this is one of the main, um, or if not the main text of Confucianism that people still read today. It's crazy how applicable some of these things are, um, even when they were spoken or said in uh, ancient China, um, how they can still be very, very applicable um, to today's life. Um, and I touched on earlier that I would get back to the timeline of Confucianism um, because this kind of takes us to the social and political issues within Confucianism. Um, so uh, like I said, Confucianism is a way um, of life in China. It's, it, it's kind of created um, some of the core values and, and practices that, did, that a lot of Chinese people live. Um, but this um, change uh, led to some, some, some uh, excuse me, I'm losing my wording here, um, but some kind of distaste for uh, Confucianism in the 20th century. But before we get to that, I spoke about Neo-Confucianism in the 10th and 13th century. Um, this is when there was some pluralist engagement with Taoism and Buddhism. Um, and instead of having those five classics, they shifted to um, four books. Um, and these books kind of included more of those practices of Taoism and Buddhism um, as well. Um, and so this is another good example, I guess. Um, we talked about how Buddhism kind of shifted from the caste system um, from Hinduism. But those two, Buddhism and Hinduism, have some some different practices that cross over. Um, it's clear that Confucianism also plays a role, uh, or also mixes with some of the other religions and other practices. And that's what the Confucianism that we really um, know now, this Neo-Confucianism, has those influences from Taoism and Buddhism. Um, and like I, I wanted to get back to the 20th century, um, that, that was a time where Confucianism was actually kind of villainized. Um, this is the rise of communism um, in China, and many people believe that the way that Confucian um, and Confucianism kind of created this structure in society was really hurting society rather than helping kind of creating um, a structure and a way of that people are loving that are kind of putting them in boxes. I, I don't want to say it's the exact same thing, but a similar idea to how the case system has really locked India into a certain way. Um, so that would be kind of the social and political issue that I would touch on with Confucianism, um, which I think is a very interesting one because we talk about how different religions can be used for different means in different ways, and, and here there's an example of it um, becoming the villain. Um, so, so just a, another different social and political issue, but um, important one nonetheless. Okay, so now the moment you've all been waiting for, we are going to get to my main findings from doing this research and really learning more about these religions. So stick with us. Okay.
So last but not least, um, my main findings from from really uh, being a part of this religious uh, educational journey. Um, so I, I've kind of mentioned in some of my other work that um, I believe that the elasticity of religion is one of the most beautiful aspects of it and also one of the most um, ugly, I guess or you could say evil aspects of, of religion. Um, and I kind of wanted to expand on this as uh, kind of my first finding um, because I think it is a really important one. Um, as we mentioned before, and something I didn't really mention um, in my initial um, work where I talked about the, the beauty and ugliness of elasticity in religion, um, not only is there elasticity within a religion itself where you can have different forms of it such as the different forms of Christianity um, or you can have kind of other other forms as dramatic or as different as the Islamic State as I mentioned before um, but there's also elasticity between religions um, and I think that also is, is one of the, the beautiful parts of it as I touched on many of these different religions um, with Confucianism and Hinduism and Buddhism and even um, Christianity to Islam, um, lots of different parts and practices are taken from one religion and used within another um, but almost maybe I don't want to use, can't find the right wording, but che tweaked or changed um, to kind of be molded into a, a way that um, is more applicable. Um, and so I think this is an interesting notion because religion is old, it's very, very old, but um, it has to evolve just like we do as humans. And this elasticity is what allows it to evolve, which is which is a very beautiful thing, um, I would say. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, it is it is can also lead to some negatives because um, it can um, be taken um, out of control. I think when you give um, enough of that freedom to kind of mold it the way you want it, some will mold it in a more negative light, um, and that that is something that I don't I, I still don't know if if you're able to have the positives of elasticity without the negatives, um, or if they both have to kind of come hand in hand. But um, that's something that I don't think there really is an answer to, but I think it's important to recognize um, just how this aspect can be both beautiful and ugly. Um, the other finding I really wanted to touch on was um, really asking my listeners, and I had to really ask myself to reconsider how um, we as a society and then how I frame and define um, religion. Um, I talked about there's a debate of whether or not Confucianism is a religion, um, and many would probably argue no. Um, and I would say, uh, let's take religion further. Let's not just look at it as whether there is God or not, or belief in God or not. I think spirituality can be seen or used or practiced in many different ways. And as expressed in a lot of different religions, spirituality can be a really personal thing. So um, how that looks is certainly up to you. Um, and when I continue to, to find my own spirituality, it's going to look the way that fits me best. Um, but I think just that notion um, of having a sense of a structure that all of these religions do that I talked about doesn't necessarily mean it has to have um, this aspect 
um, this monotheistic or godlike aspect. Um, just that idea of structure um, and spirituality and going on a path or a journey um, to kind of better yourself and maybe to better your society. Um, that's what religion truly, truly is about to me. Um, and that's really what this educational experience has taught me is that um, it's a process and it takes time and it can really be molded in so many different ways. Um, and in some ways that's what the elasticity does is it lets you mold it how you would like, um, but that's, that's really part of the process um, to me. I guess that's a really long re definition for religion. It certainly wouldn't fit in the dictionary definition, but um, I hope you kind of catch a gist of what I'm trying to say. Um, well, thanks so, so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, just Talks with Jasmine will be, there will be more to come. Um, I would just like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Queen's University of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, our motto is not to be served, but to serve. So in some ways, I hope this podcast can educate those or others um, who, who needed maybe a little bit of guidance in religion. Um, and I hope that this podcast could open up conversations about religion because that's what Just Talks with Jasmine is about. It's about having conversations um, that we don't typically have. And I think religion is an important one. So thank you for listening.